Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. I am really excited to tell you today that we have a self-described described mad scientist with us, Vivian Ming, and she is going to lead us through an incredibly insightful conversation that I know you all will be jazzed about. Hi, Vivian. Nice to meet you and see you again. Uh, it's always wonderful to have a really fascinating conversation. So it's great to be here. Great. Let me tell you guys just a little bit about Vivian, and then you'll understand why it is such a treat to have her with us today. In addition to being a self-described mad scientist, she's a theoretical neuroscientist, an AI expert, an entrepreneur, and an author, and she's frequently featured for her research and inventions in the Financial Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Quartz, The New York Times. You won't believe this, but she's actually now co-founded her fifth company. We're going to hear a little bit about that journey and what the current company does, Socos Labs. Socos is an independent institute exploring the future of human potential. Before that, Vivian was a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley's Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience, and she has also invented some really cool AI systems of using AI for good. She's created systems that do things like help treat her diabetic son and predict manic episodes and bipolar sufferers weeks in advance and even reunite orphan refugees with extended family members. So welcome, Vivian. My goodness, you, I have to say, are living the dream of, I know, many students today and um, many entrepreneurs. Can you just share with us a little bit about your personal journey? How did you get to where you are today and founding your fifth company? Yeah, well, uh you know, as you unravel my story, and we probably don't want it to take the entire discussion time, but oh, it could. Um, <laughs> you'll see that uh, most of what people are probably imagining is actually the second half of my life. Uh, and strangely, I'll start there uh, at the start of the second half. So I was an academic. I did my PhD work at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, where I studied cognitive psychology and computational neuroscience. Um, really loved the idea of using machine learning, artificial intelligence, but to understand people. Um, and I didn't think of it. It was just a scientific curiosity. I wasn't expecting a world to emerge in 2000, whereby in 2020, Artificial intelligence becoming a dominant technology in a lot of fields in the world, from medicine to um, logistics to just ad targeting. So uh, it was really dumb luck that I happened to be walking into this field. But it was also, I'm not a, an artificial intelligence researcher. I study brains. I just happened to use machine learning to do that. And it turns out Brains are really interesting to inspire new forms of machine learning. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's always been a tool, something 
that you apply to a problem. Mm -hmm. I'm thrilled that people can geek out about convergence proofs and complexity theory. I love stuff like that. But to me, it's just fun. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, this stuff is meaningful because someone might be alive because you made a diagnosis that otherwise wasn't possible. Uh, that's what really moves me. So I was uh, doing my PhD. I, I then had a joint appointment at Stanford Berkeley. Um, and then my wife and I had an idea to start an educational technology company. Um, you know, I got my AI chocolate in her uh, education and psychology peanut butter, uh, which if you're old enough to get the reference, then you're a good person. If you're not, <laughs> well, um, you can, you probably can guess what I think about you. Uh, so I, I started this company and uh, I didn't really have a background in the business space. I'd been a scientist. Uh, I'd been other things. I'll come back around to that. But I, I, we wanted to make a difference. This could just have been an academic experiment, but we uh -huh. saw a way to listen to students talk to each other. And from that, without ever giving them a formal exam, we could actually predict how well they do in the class. Uh, wow. And our deep belief was, why wait till a student fails a class or even gets a B? If we could, as soon as possible, identify where students had misconcepts, and I didn't want to replace the teacher, um, could we actually create a little dashboard that would allow teachers to explore what's going on in the black box of their students' heads? Wow. And I was so proud of myself. It was, it was cool. We published scientific papers, not necessarily what you're supposed to do with a startup, but that's what I did. Boy, were venture capitalists not interested in education. They weren't interested. I mean, they thought artificial intelligence was the coolest thing in the world. Uh -huh. They had no idea what it was back then. <laughs> uh, and their only thing they could see that would be worthwhile with it would be um, uh, looking at credit fraud. So the, the only on the table was if we completely start a business plan, uh, retooled to focus on credit card fraud, and fire myself as CEO. One guy said, I got $2 million for you, and I've got the perfect CEO. Because I'm literally sitting across the table <laughs> pitching my company to him. Uh, so, you know, it was, I have founded a bunch of companies since then. I've been the chief scientist of several others. It was a good idea. I can say with great confidence in retrospect, I may not have truly known what I was doing, but we had a good idea that could have made a big difference. Um, but no one could see the value add of either me as an entrepreneur or making a difference for at-risk kids in education. And you know what? They're right. Of course, we could have made more money in fraud detection than in education. Education is not a great place to go make money. Right. There's money to be made there. There's a sustainable business. Yeah. But I love being a scientist. I love being an academic. So... I wasn't chasing the next billion dollar deal. I was looking at how something I could build would have a positive impact on the world in a sustainable way. That's right. Uh, and could grow big. I mean, s positive and sustainable at the scale of a billion kids. Mm -hmm. But boy, was that a hard thing to get across before Coursera, before Khan Academy, 
before AI was an everyday concept in the business world. These are hard things to get across. And it did not help, now for the big reveal, that it was co-founded by a couple of married women, that one of the co-founders, despite having a couple of very fancy smancy PhDs and scientific publications, had spent a fairly long time in the 90s homeless. Um, you know, I am not anyone's, uh, I am not Hollywood's central castings idea of what a geek tycoon looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, turn up, uh, most successful founders aren't that. That's right. Uh, but trying trying to go out there and raise funding through that is hard. And, you know, in the end, we had a success. We had a small acquisition. It um, wasn't my dream, but was an outcome. Once you make money for people, suddenly doors open up. Uh, every company I've done since then was so much easier. But it also really opened my eyes to how hard, if you are even a little bit different than the stereotype for an entrepreneur, how hard, how, how much extra effort goes into just passing through those first barriers. Mm-hmm. But I will admit, I got kind of hooked. I started an ed tech company, then I started another one. And then I got started in a company doing sort of social connection in business. Instead yeah. of who do you know, uh, a la LinkedIn, it was who should you know? Uh-huh. You go into the big conference in your field, who should you meet while you're there? that would really make a difference. Yeah. That was one of my coolest projects. Though it was the only one that actually went anywhere. Every other company had it, but not that one. I got poached out of that to be the chief scientist of a company called Guild, uh, one of the first ever doing AI and hiring. And oh my goodness, is that a fraud ethical field, uh, but also incredible from both a business and a technology standpoint. Yeah. So, I'll close with this. I've, I've had the chance to start these companies. I've been the chief scientist at, at three others. I've actually started my sixth company uh, fairly recently. Um, it's called Dionysus and we're in public health. Again, the things you could do with artificial intelligence that would make money, lots of money, don't include education or public health. Yeah. But it turns out if you wanna make a big impact, the overwhelming, positive effect on mortality and morbidity over the last 40 years has been from public I, you know, it's great that people have discovered drugs and come up with new surgical techniques, but overwhelmingly more people are alive today because of improvements in public health. So we're looking at things like how chronic stress directly causally leads to ischemic heart disease, type two diabetes, major depression, uh, exacerbation of bipolar disorder, the things that ruin lives over decades. Um, you know, again, probably not the sexiest business idea, but this is an area that will actually affect people in a yeah. positive way. That's right. And if I wanted to be a billionaire, I'd already be a billionaire. Yeah. This this is the world I want my kids to grow up in. Exactly, exactly. And you're making a huge difference. So uh, being in education, I have to go back and ask you about that first business idea that you had, um, not to take the teacher out of the classroom, but to help them see where they were missing concepts. What happened to that idea? Well, you know, some of it was me learning things, you know, as an entrepreneur, you could totally geek out. 
And, and one of my advisors in grad school told me what his advisor told him, which was always meant to keep, you know, my head up. Science is a story. And that story should be about an hour long. Um, but science is a story. And so it means two things. One, of course, is be able to communicate the work that you do uh-huh. to more than just the six other people in the world that understand it. Uh-huh. Um, but the other is that it's not about one single discovery or one paper. It's about the story that explains your entire field. Right. Everything you're doing is actually building that story. Right. It's, it's like a story is a meta hypothesis uh-huh. of the whole way the world works. So, but, but still, you know, I am a scientist. Um, I am moderately clever. And I walked into this space with the attitude of, I'm so much smarter than everyone else. Uh, I've invented this amazing tool that can actually identify if students have a misconcept. Right. Use it. And the, the general feed we got was, oh my God, this is amazing uh-huh. and terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and what the hell am I supposed to do with it? You know, I've already got a, a three hour. Well, I've got a, I get paid for 40 hours a week. I work 70 hours a week. When am I supposed to learn how to use this incredibly confusing thing? Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I learned the hard way over the years, both in philanthropic work and in ownership is one, you're never as smart as you think you are. Uh, just throw that away right off the bat. Um, but also, it wouldn't even matter if you were. So what if I was 100% right? If they didn't use it, I didn't make a difference. Right. right. Um, and so we found ourselves back and back and back. I've worked on a lot of projects over the years. Education is the one that has, in a sense, never ended. Uh, from that original piece of work, analyzing students' conversations, just literally we could pick up on, for example, university students just talking to each other online right. to see whether they understood the material they were talking uh-huh. about uh-huh. and who might have misconcepts and so forth. Right. Um, and we built dashboards and all this sort of stuff. We have walked that back all the way to um, mom and dad do you have 20 minutes free tonight? If you do, uh, here is the way we think you should spend those 20 minutes. Here's an activity that we believe will have the biggest impact on your young child's life. So we've, instead of a dashboard for a teacher to explore, you know, I learned the lesson, they want answers. Uh-huh. They don't want more data. Uh, I mean, I wish people wanted to explore, but in this process it's not thinking what is the problem to be solved here and the problem is you're teaching too many students uh the the, you've got constraints in your time yeah so instead of creating new things to do how do i make the things you're already doing easier easier. and more effective and let's be honest if the choice is between easier and more effective we can send will increase the university admission rate for your students by 50% or we'll cut your grading time in half. Mm-hmm. Exact same product. Mm-hmm. Cut the grading time in half will win every single time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's an, 
yeah, the, the university stuff is a nice to have, but the grading time, like feel that. So I guess the way I always describe it is I invent broccoli. Uh, and then I have to spend years figuring out how to bake my broccoli into a brownie. Uh, people get a brownie. They have distribution channels for brownies. Uh, they got, they know what it is. They know it's going to have more nutritious brownie. Uh, it would be great if I could get people to eat raw broccoli because it'd be really good for them. They understand it would be good for them, but that doesn't actually fix the system that we're right. trying to address. Right. So we built this stuff and it's evolved over the years. Uh, we run a, a system um, which is in desperate need of a, of a recent overhaul, which we're working on right now called Muse. And it does what I got to, which is we really resolve down to, all right, let's go right. Who cares the most about the long-term outcomes of a kid? And when can you have the biggest impact? Mm -hmm. Early in their life, directly to caregivers, a parent, a grandparent, a foster, whoever it might be. Um, and make it super easy. Uh, we're gonna ask you one question a day and we'll give you one activity a day and that's it. We won't even allow you to do more than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the most at-risk kids, the most at-risk families are the ones that are the least able to make use of the kind of technology I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So make this something uh, and this is a general truth, I think, about technology and product development in general. Mm -hmm. uh, build a product where your desired outcome is not a possible outcome. It's not, I can imagine a world in which people right. put in the extra effort. It is the inevitable outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, people will inevitably choose to make use of it. And it will have that positive because our world is particularly in the technology space yeah, is overpopulated with people who I think, you know, I'll just, I'll pick an obvious name. I don't think in a million years, Mark Zuckerberg saw Facebook as something that was going to erode public trust. Mm -hmm. um, and he didn't intend for it to be, and it doesn't have to be. And yet in the end, in certain places, it absolutely has that impact. Uh, and I think he and many of the people building it are still in that space of, I can imagine a world in which this is an uh, undeniable good, right. but we only live in a world where the inevitable outcomes dominate. Uh, and right. that's the kind of product you have to build. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay, let's dive a little bit deeper into this whole topic of responsible and ethical use of AI. I love how you framed it up at the beginning about it being a tool. So that's sort of like human in the middle um, is what comes to mind for me. And the thought of um, not handing over to a machine a problem that you don't already know the answer to and expect that somehow it's just going to come up with the answer. And I think you actually wrote a great piece on that in the Financial Times, which I'll drop in the show notes for everybody to read. But let's talk specifically about that, about bias in our promotions and our hiring. We know it exists. We know that we all have implicit biases as humans, right? So as much as we may try to root it out, it's there. And the risk with AI seems to me is that it's only going to exacerbate that because we haven't yet figured out how to completely root out bias in, in hiring and in promotions, right? A, you know, perfect example is what happened with Amazon and their, you know, their secret tool they had built. So what do you think the answer is here? 
to this to this problem? And is it a problem that AI can truly help us with or not? You know, I will start again with the simple statement that AI is just a tool. It's not a magic wand. Right. I am not Hermione Granger. Uh, I can't magic problems away using AI. Let me say a lot of AI people, at least in their early days of in those early promises, that's exactly what was being sold. Mm -hmm. You've got a business problem or anything else. Here's this magic, which will make it go away. Right. Didn't work. Right? It's, it's, it's numbers and equations. So of course it can't be biased, mm -hmm. which is a truly absurd notion. I know that machine learning as a complex field is, can be a little obscure and, and obtuse, but uh, the fact is when problems get complicated, there's uh -huh. a universal truth, which is in fact, all of these systems have bias. Uh, in fact, it's impossible not to have bias, whether we're talking about human cognition or complex machine learning or a rat, it doesn't, doesn't matter. The definition of AI that's most useful, if a little wonky, is it's any autonomous system making a decision under uncertainty. There's mm -hmm. no right answer. There are better answers, but there's no right answer. So fundamentally, in a world with no right answer, there's bias. Right. Um, there's the different ways, for example, to measure what is a better and a worse answer. So mm. right off the bat, you can appreciate that even if we were talking about two people, they might have different criteria for what makes right. a great employee or right. what makes a great loan or what makes a great product recommendation. Yeah. Right. And so they're going to recommend different things. Well, uh -huh. guess what? AI is just as idiosyncratic, as unique as the rest of us. Now, it is, it is that in a very different way. Now, let's be clear. Artificial intelligence is not the same as natural intelligence. Maybe someday these things will converge. Yeah. I do work in neuroprosthetics, i.e. I build cyborgs. So I have that vision of a world um, right. or maybe AI itself truly becomes intelligent. But what AI can do that we are not so good at uh -huh. is it can take every single number into account. Right. But that doesn't mean it's unbiased. It mm -hmm. just means when a human recruiter looks at a paper, and this has been well-researched for literally a hundred years, they have about as much attention as three variables, your name, your school, and your last job. Right. So your average recruiter, that's it. You know, maybe five seconds, a quick look. And you think that's terrible, but that's almost exactly what an, uh, a grandmaster in chess does when they look at a chessboard. They don't look at a thousand different possible moves. Right. Generally thinking, they are looking at three possible moves. Mm -hmm. It's just as a grandmaster, it turns out those are often the three best moves if you really crunch the numbers. Whereas a lot of AI is going to look, you know, it's going to do massive computation and explore lots of possibilities. Right, right. Um, but it also has its biases based mm -hmm. on how it's been trained, much like mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. So a recruiter looks at three pieces of information, but I can make a machine learning system. And I did at Guild that looked at 400,000 pieces of information and didn't even take five seconds. It took uh, a couple hundred milliseconds to wow. process that information. Right. So now we can see two very different things going on. Um, you know, this massive glut of information and trying to infer 
something unknown about the world? Should I bring this person in for an interview versus three pieces of information? And maybe let's call it a lot of intuition. Yeah. You know, which is better? Uh-huh. And I would contend neither. Um, the simple truth is that we know there is a lot of human bias in the hiring process. It's fairly easy to measure that bias. I'm willing to, to bet that some meaningful percentage of your viewers are sort of shaking their head and saying, oh, we're hearing about bias and hiring again. There's bias and everything. Like I said earlier, we're human. We have biases. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying you're human. Right. Uh, we have we have biases in favor of certain schools. We have biases in favor of a depth of a voice. We have biases sometimes not so much about whether someone's a man or a woman, but just how feminine or masculine they are. Mm-hmm. It turns out being a feminine uh, presenting man is is actually really bad. So there's mm-hmm. all of these subtle biases that play into our decisions, um, including on a resume. Uh, it turns out people really love an Ivy League school. Doesn't mean that's not predictive, but they love it way more than the value it actually predicts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've sort of encoded these simple rules, heuristics to get by. Mm-hmm. AI doesn't do it. AI can crunch much broader numbers. Yeah. But here's the problem with those broader numbers is because it is math, it needs to get referenced against something. Okay. It needs to be told what the right answer is. So I've got 400,000 numbers, but got it. What what's the equation? What am I trying to generate? What am I regressing against or training a deep neural network? Well, for Amazon, it was, will you get a promotion in your first year at Amazon? Yep. And now we can get at what the problem might be, which is, so where do they get those right answers from? They get it from Amazon's hiring history. Right. Well, we can all understand the same is true of any tech company. Amazon's hiring history and its first year promotion rates yeah. are wildly biased in favor of men. Sure. And so strangely enough, when an AI is trained on that data, it becomes even more biased mm-hmm. than the original recruiters that generated that data. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see the same thing, by the way, in health. Um, some very well-intentioned doctors put together a model to look for people that should be patients that should be brought back for a checkup mm-hmm. uh, after a health heart scare. Right. And they made a very reasonable assumption. Um, the amount of money spent on the patient in that subsequent years uh-huh. is an indicator of how sick they were. So we really want to bring back the patients that we spent that were more sick Correct. Uh, prophylactically before they become sick. So sure. the ones that had more money spent. Sure. So here's the terrible story. Um, that model was implemented. It was used in practice. And then uh, a paper came out in nature saying, oh, by the way, um, much more money is spent on average on white patients versus black patients for the exact same conditions. And there's a variety of reasons, which can even be purely regional. Black patients uh, disproportionately, for example, live uh, in portions of the South where uh, healthcare costs are lower than on the coasts. Uh, so just simple things like that. Uh, I, I'm sure there is well-documented sources of more explicit bias as well. But even simple things like regionality mean more money is spent on average on white patients and black patients for the exact same conditions, which meant white patients were brought back by this model at a much higher rate than black patients. Yeah. And so the authors of this paper went through and calculated 
thousands of people died who wouldn't have had the model been trained more equitably. No one intended for this model to have this bias. Nobody wanted these people to die. No one was a villain here. Right, Uh, right. But it is a recognition that just because it's an equation, just because there are lots of numbers, doesn't mean that it's right. All of these numbers have their own implicit bias behind them. And, you know, we, so for me, in the end, it's a tool. Where do we get the best results consistently over and over again, including from a business perspective? Mm -hmm. We get it when we create, take creative people uh, and sophisticated artificial intelligence and bring them together. Right. When we substitute for people. Yeah. 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 With models that have to be trained. Right. I mean, you have to step back and take that time for the human to, to train it. I heard that in some of what you were saying, you know, both in the hospital example and the hiring example, if you spend a little more time up front with humans kind of monitoring, if you will, modeling it, doing the training of the, of the, um, of the algorithm before it's released, then, then it could be a better tool. Might not be perfect, But, but it could be better. It may not be perfect, but then here is the other side of the story, which is going to harken back to my comments about education. So we built that tool. We built a tool that was transparent, which means it explains why it makes the hiring recommendations it does or sourcing in our case. Uh, It's very specific. It identifies specific things that are driving its recommendations why they are a fit for your company versus another company. It even Uh pre-templated a personalized letter that you could send to build a relationship with this candidate. Uh And almost nobody used any of that. When we did our user testing with our very fancy AI that was meant to make recruiters better, when we did our user testing, we found that they gave you five seconds and when they opened up your profile in our system, they looked at your name, your school, and your last job. Not every recruiter, Goodness. but the vast majority of them. So user adoption was a huge problem. Well, people used it for some reasons that we embedded in here. Um, you know, we made it very easy to uh, discover people that you may not have come across uh, otherwise. But the funny thing is that's why people bought our system. It was a whole reason. You know, if you're an elite company, you already know everyone that's coming out of Stanford and Harvard or Cal or Michigan. Uh Um, It's everyone that's not, Uh that is the big question mark. And Uh that's why people paid us a lot of money for our product. Okay. Um, But then once their recruiters got into the system, they hired you because you went to Stanford or Harvard. Uh, and that may feel like a little bit of a heartbreak, but I come back to the fact that I own this, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. wh- why would they change their entire way? They have learned how to be a recruiter, uh, just because this thing comes out, particularly in HR, which can be a very risk averse, right, uh, right. part of the business world. Like yeah. you hire someone that 20 years from now becomes a senior executive. No one's going to come back and give you a bonus. Right. But if you hire someone who on day one is a disaster, you take a risk on someone yeah. that doesn't have credentials, you do. then you yeah. are at a real risk of losing your job. So yeah. that dynamic builds up. Nobody wants to learn this new tool. Nobody Got wants it. to invest. And when I say nobody, I'm being too strong. There were people. So with all of these things, 
if I'm saying subs, we shouldn't substitute for people, we should make them better. Uh-huh. You should not only be better when you're using a new technology, you should be better than where you started when you turn it off again. Right. So when I build a product nowadays or my philanthropic work or any of it, that is always my starting question. How do I make certain that this person is immediately better in some way that matters to them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that even when they stop using it, they remain better at whatever it is they were trying to do, mm-hmm. uh, which is a hard constraint. But again, uh, it is that those is inevitable outcomes that yeah. are really meaningful. If I can't solve that problem, I don't know that I've truly solved anything. Mm. Interesting. So let's, 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 let's riff on that for a minute. So let's, um, let's take that, that idea of, uh, what you just said, am I going to be a better person when I actually turn off that tool and stop using it? Right. Um, and so promoting inclusion and getting people to, you know, think more open-mindedly, um, all kinds of studies showing all the benefits of that. Right. And then we go into this COVID world where we've all been working at home for the last two years and, and, you know, going on more. (laughs) So, well, not everybody, but a lot of people are right. So it would seem to me that that would, uh, could potentially throw the, a big juggernaut into a company's ability, um, to follow through on their desire of promoting inclusion for everyone when everyone's like working at home and, and sort of siloed. So how, I think you may have done some research in this area. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on that. And like, h- how have companies dealt with that issue? And what did your research show about how to deal with that issue? So yeah. It's more better when you turn off your Zoom. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I, um, I have this little organization here called Zocos Labs. And um, it works as follows. People bring me a problem or sometimes we come up with it internally. And if I think my team and I can make a unique difference on that problem, then I pay for everything and we try and come up with a solution. And if we succeed, we give it away. Uh, And those problems come to me often in the form of emails like, Dr. Ming, my daughter has 500 seizures a day, Uh, or my son can't enter REM sleep, which is doesn't sound like a huge issue, but it's That's astonishing crazy. that that kid was still alive. Uh, or in this case, uh, Facebook and Amazon separately reached out to me uh, and said, we've never had to do inclusion or innovation with everyone at home before. We've never even had everyone at home, much less these two specific yeah. things. Yeah. What do we do? And I right. obviously I got this these messages like in March of 2020 uh, and so you get the sense I'm a terrible entrepreneur. I'm, I mean, most of my time is spent running an organization where uh, people give me their problems and I charge them nothing for the answers. Um, but in this particular case, that seemed like a problem we're solving because everyone yeah. in the world was experiencing the same thing. And I thought what I'd be able to do is just leaf through a bunch of existing research and offer some insights. Uh-huh. There's nothing. Uh, you know, there's... Uh, one notable case of a Chinese company, a large one that went entirely remote. Uh, but essentially there was no substantial data yeah. on remote work in general, yeah. much less these two questions, innovation right. and inclusion. Right. So in the end, we just had to break some new ground. 
Uh, so we put some existing research together and then we ran some experiments with some of our partners. Uh, and in a way, as a mad scientist, remote work is a fascinating experiment because unlike in the office, I get to see everything you're doing. Every time you speak to someone else, there's a record of how long it was, often about what it was you were talking about. Yeah. I've had the chance, you know, in, in sure. COVID world, there's contract tracing. Well, actually, uh, researchers have been doing contract tracing to reconstruct social networks, you know, in-body social networks inside schools and companies for a while. I've had the chance to do this with some big companies as well. Mm -hmm. um, but here, it's super easy. So we were able to see all of these interactions. Um, and we found, let's start with the innovation, uh, but trust yeah. me, inclusion turns out to be fundamentally related to it. On the innovation side, we found that the most innovative, first off, there's an idea that you can innovate if you're not hanging out at the water cooler together. Mm -hmm. We found that there's no special privilege to smashing everyone together on a university campus or a corporate campus or anything else. Uh, in fact, in some ways, that can be a drag on the system. Interesting. What we found, what predicted the most, the greatest uh, innovation was small teams, flat hierarchies within those teams. So even though there might be a senior vice president and a new hire, uh, uh, you know, member of the National Academy of Science and an undergrad student, when they're actually collaborating, mm -hmm. those hierarchies disappear. Because uh, otherwise, what's the point of having the grad student there? Right. If they're afraid to say something, then right. they're not adding value. Right. Um, so flat hierarchies uh, on small teams. Um, a, a lot of fascinating work with technology tools. So um, collaborative documents, wikis, uh -huh. uh, things like Google Docs. Um, yep. Not so much chat. Turns out chat doesn't seem to improve in a innovation in any way. It's, yeah, it's actually sharing, mm -hmm. like having a centralized shared right, right, mind. Right. right. Um, and um, so we see these flat hires, small teams uh, integrated. Tools. They have complementary diversity, okay. uh, which is a bit of a, a term to unpack. So this is a well-known thing in uh, collective intelligence in general. Uh, two of the biggest predictors of collective intelligence at any scale is how diverse that population is. For example, uh, slightly more women than men, slightly more women than men is universally a strong predictor of collective intelligence from a small team to a whole community. Yep. Um, and the other core ingredient is psychological safety. Right. Which I'm going to nuance a little bit and give it my own specific definition. Okay. It is that I feel free to pitch a crazy idea knowing that even if I'm wrong, it's okay. I'm not out of the team. Right, I'm not right. low, less in people's eyes. That is a huge predictor of collective intelligence is because that's the whole point of being different mm -hmm. is that chance to bring a different idea. Yeah. And when you upset that, then you realize the inevitable result is most of us are gonna be wrong most of the time. Right. And it's what we collectively arrive at that yeah. is truly important. Right. So these are the things, 
Wow. Uh, cl- uh, complementary diversity. We are different in certain ways, but we have shared uh, qualities that build trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, small teams, flat hierarchies. Turns out those exact same things when we're tracking everyone on Zoom and Google Meets and Microsoft Teams or whatever other craziness people are making use of, all of those same things become predictors of inclusion. Uh, and wow. it's a little complicated operationalizing it, but let's do one that I've worked on for, with a, sure. for a while. Yeah. Do people with similar work histories have the same probability of promotion? Okay. Once you take, say, race or gender or other outcomes. So, for example, gender, almost immediately, women with uh, similar work histories to men are, um, sorry, let me put it in these terms. Um, women who are rated higher in performance uh-huh. are also systematically rated lower in potential and less likely to get promoted into management and executive positions. Interesting. Um and, uh, and there's a lot of nuance there, but it's really replicated finding again and again. And it's a, it's a meaningful one. It's not like women never get promoted. Uh, right. You know, it's not right. that kind of a glass ceiling, but right. it's a substantial yeah. point of drag. It accounts right. for about 40% of yeah. the difference in promotion rates between men and women. Yeah, sort of like difference... she's really good at what she's doing. So why would we not want her to be able to keep doing that? She's so good at what she's doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, so we see these kinds of things creep in. So um, that becomes an, a, a pretty a reasonably objective way. If yeah. we're looking at people's work histories, and we're seeing very different promotion rates, despite uh-huh. very similar work histories, uh-huh. something weird is going on in this system. Yeah. Uh, so it turns out the organizational structure that best predicts similar promotion rates, small teams, flat hierarchies, uh, complementary diversity, but one additional and fairly important uh, element, which is then opened a whole new can of worms for us, yeah. is equitable time on camera. Um, This is an interesting thing. It is true of us in office subtly, but it is a big effect on a camera. The amount of time that your face is on the screen in front of me, not that you're in the Hollywood squares background, but that you're the principal speaker that I'm paying attention to. Count the minutes and that all things being equal, that becomes a significant predictor of work opportunities and promotion rates. Um, again, controlling for work history and job performance. Yeah. So people so, that get more so face time are getting more promotions. Managers need to really think about that then. Like not just the make because if you have a small team and the makeup of the team isn't diverse, then you're not going to have a diverse, you know, face on the camera either. So it starts with having the right members of the small team, but then making sure that almost it's like equal time, if you will, but that everyone is seen, truly seen and heard for the same amount of time. That's really yeah, and, interesting. Yeah, and you know, I'm saying this, it's, this isn't, again, an explicit form of bias. This is in fact a fairly low level ph- phenomenon happening in our brain. It's really yeah. a brain hack, yeah, a yeah, bad right, kind right. of brain hack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, where we're just sort of accumulated minutes and our brain starts kind of upvoting people just because of accumulated minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, then it interacts because we're much more likely to spend time with people that are similar to us. Yeah. 
Right. And yeah, similar in race and similar in gender. Turns out, though, again, this is a pretty low-level human phenomenon. Similar in smell. Similar in terms of the intestinal flora and fauna. I mean, you may be amazed along how many different dimensions we sort of lazily prefer similarity. Um, even though it doesn't actually present, obviously, any business yeah. advantage. I just told yeah. you, diversity actually includes, improves collective intelligence when right. it's paired with trust. Right. So this is that can of worms that it opened for me. I'm a neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. Why is it if for decades now, we've been talking about, for example, the value of diversity? Mm -hmm. And diversity is so clearly, so replicably from boards to lab experiments such a component of innovation. Yes. Why does it persist? So I wrote out something called the diversity innovation paradox. Mm -hmm. uh, it is well, it's very easy to demonstrate that uh, as you increase the diversity of a community, innovation improves. Uh, some colleagues of mine at Stanford, uh, computational linguists, made an AI that analyzed every single dissertation written in every field since 1977. It may be the only entity in the entire world that read my dissertation, because I sure as hell didn't. Um, and it found the more of an outlier you were in your field, the more innovative your research was, the more novel the scientific impact, but the less cited and the less likely you were to get subsequently promoted. Yeah. Um, so we have these deep biases that have persisted and persisted. And I really wanted to know what was going on. So I started looking at the neuroscience of trust. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something I think a lot of managers need to think hard about. I agree. What we found was um, if something, someone's very similar to me, not only do I have these circuits involving frontal networks uh, and reward centers in your brain, like the nucleus accumbens and your dopaminergic system, um, I have this complex network. And when someone's very similar to me, not only does that network essentially activate at, with no real effort, it's, it's what we would call automatized, okay. I actually get a little reward. I get a little bit of dopamine, a little bit of endogenous opioid. Trusting someone that's similar to me uh, is easy and it even makes me feel good. Hmm. As yeah. people get progressively more different, different culturally, different race, uh, different socioeconomic status, we can track all of these differences and it holds true. The rewards disappear and the effort, the effort to deploy that same level of trust to a, a, an otherwise similar person goes up. And those frontal circuits that are supplying that effort are the same ones you're using to get your job done. The same ones that are firing because you're trying to hit a deadline. The same right. ones that are under pressure because the board needs you to deliver. Right. So you are competing for the exact same resources yeah. to do the thing you're trying to do and to recruit the people to help you do it. Mm -hmm. Well, now you begin to see why our problems persist. Right. Uh, if I'm putting all of this effort into my job, as I should, right, and it pulls away the resources There's I need to see someone for who they truly right. are, yeah, then I am going to essentially undertrust. I'm going to undervalue people that could actually provide the value I need to my teams. And I think until we can see that and work hard to overcome it, 
we're going to continue to put together teams, which are easy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, they'll yeah. deliver. They'll get right. there. Um, <laughs> but Deadline. they won't, you'll actually miss right. out on all of the additional value that could right. have been created. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's an incredible piece of research that that's, that is what, and if somebody wanted to go find and read about that a little bit more, Vivian, where, where would that be? So we're putting together some free technical versions of this, but if you want to have some fun, uh, if they go to socos.org, you'll find our little newsletter there and we write about all this stuff. Uh, In particular, this was in a piece appropriately titled Remote Work. Yeah. But my the dirty secret is it had subchapters on I mean, all these things I write start out with like, I'm gonna write this little six hundred word essay and like a hundred thousand words later and multiple chapters. I wrote one called This Is Not the Industrial Revolution about artificial intelligence and the future of work. And again, that line just came from something I said to a jerk on a stage uh, at the Milken conference once. And, uh, and and this one similarly. So it ended up being like nine chapters long and wow. there's a chapters on innovation and on inclusion, which quite okay. frankly are true regardless of whether we're talking about remote work or not. Yeah, exactly. You know, this idea of the diversity innovation paradox of the, of what we call, um, uh, you know, looking at distributed innovation, mm-hmm. uh, how you how you mer- get the right people to meet one another yeah, and create right. those sparks. Right. Uh, and specifically on the neuroscience of trust. So if you want to, yeah. uh, if you can stand the occasional dirty joke, because I just can't help myself, um, and the story of how we got there with this work, then you can visit the site, find the piece on awesome. remote work, see some of the other ones. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, it's, it's, again, I, I enjoy the things I get to do. I I mean, I must, cause I pay a lot of money to do them. Um, and it's incredible and you're adding so much value to society and leaving an incredible legacy. It's just fabulous. So I've got to ask you one last question. You've been so generous with your time and I really appreciate it. I know the audience does too. You're putting out an incredible amount of great work, but when you need to turn to other resources for inspiration and to learn a little bit more and to dig a little bit deeper, where do you go? What else could you recommend to the, to the audience from the expert as to, I don't know, podcasts or documentaries or books or white papers? What, what, where do you go for inspiration? So I go to a few different places. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'll say this, the first thing I do is I go to the problem as, as a naive person recognizing, I don't know it. I don't know the solution. I start with the problem. So, uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, Right. I want, we once did a little collaboration with them, which evolved into, you know, could we build a little system that helped give a nudge to their wish granters to such that when the kid says, I want to go to Disneyland, the wish granter could say, well, what if you brought your three best friends with you? We'll pay for that too. Mm -hmm. And the reason for the nudge is because it literally increases the survivor rate of the kid. So can we nudge the wish to increase the survivor rates? So that is a perfect example of where I start on every project, which isn't the data because they didn't have any. Right. Uh, and it isn't so much the background, although there are a couple of existing papers to say that granting the wish does improve uh, survival rates for these kids. Uh-huh. It was watching the wish grantor go out and ring doorbells. 
right? The, think about the two places where I've already admitted failure, the teachers and the recruiters. The problem was not that I didn't have some cool ass AI that could save the world in some hypothetical way. Uh -huh. The problem was I built something that they didn't want to use. Uh -huh. uh, and so until you actually go out and observe the world, the actual human problem, not the data problem, right? you don't understand what it is you're solving. Once you've done that, where do I go? I read blogs of people I disagree with. Uh, now, I don't mean people that are provocateurs and they're just, you know, you know right. speaking nonsense, but yeah. I read conservative economists uh, whose views of the world are different than mine. But remember when I said science is a story? Yeah. If my story doesn't include their research, then my story isn't right. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what, what explains my research and their research at the same time? I never yeah. get to just say no. So I love, obviously I'm talking economists and scientists that may not be the thing for everyone else, but follow a couple of people on a blog or Twitter who are reasonable, uh, but on the opposite side of an issue from you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because you'll get a very different view of, of what a real uh, insights into problems yeah, uh, yeah. once you confront that. Um, and after that, oh gosh, I mean, I read a lot of science uh, and the scholarship in general. I read a lot of economics papers. Uh -huh. uh, the um, National Bureau of Economics Research is just puts out tons of working papers and you can find so many fascinating topics covered in the economics world. Yeah. Obviously, I still read a lot of, of uh, uh, about neuroscience because I sit on the boards of a, a couple of different neurotech companies. Um, out there trying to build cyborgs, although in our case, Alzheimer's, yeah. uh, cerebral palsy, these are the things we're trying to address. Yeah. Um, so essentially, I just keep my eyes open yeah. for new problems. For new problems. I love that advice, though. Look, understand the problem, the human problem that you're actually trying to solve, and then open your mind and your perspective to differing points of view so that you can make sure that your solution to that well-defined human problem actually is going to be received, you know, well. And let me be entirely clear. I am always right about everything. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a curse, but I somehow bear this uh, burden. Um, so I'm not saying I just, you know, I'm, I accept everything everyone says or can't we all get along. Yeah. Uh, it's okay to disagree with people. Right. But you have to understand why you disagree with them. Right. And frequently, occasionally, not that I would ever admit it, they're actually right about something. <laughs> uh, and I need to update uh, the way I'm thinking about the world uh, yeah. to explain why I didn't understand this problem appropriately. Yeah. Um, because I think the, the number one reason big new ideas fail, whether it's uh, inventing or science or, you know, just uh, business in general is you didn't actually understand the problem you were trying to solve. That's right. You thought you did. Right. Um, uh, and generally speaking, it's because you thought it was a simpler problem than mm -hmm. it actually is. Mm -hmm. uh, my story is no matter how complex you think the brain is, it's more complex than that. Uh, yeah. And everything, as far as I can tell, this has generalized to anything involving human beings at all. Mm -hmm. um, so 
just get comfortable with the problems being messy, with the fact that maybe there aren't perfect solutions to problems. Yeah. The question right. is, can you make a positive difference, even if it's an imperfect solution? Yeah. Uh, sometimes that's all you have available to you. Right, right, right. I love it. We're going to end it there, Vivian. Thank you so, so much. This has been an enlightening and uplifting conversation about responsible and ethical use of AI. Yes, we talked about some problems that can be created, but there's a lot of good that can be done in the world too when it's done in the right way and when it's married together with humans and, and you think through it in the right way. And remember that it's a tool, as you said. We'll end where we started. AI is a tool. Absolutely. Uh, let me just say, AI, I wouldn't spend so many hours of every day working on this stuff if I didn't think it could be a force for good in the world. That's right. That's right. We end up with problems when we think that it's going to solve our problems for us. Yeah. Uh, and right. in general, I would generalize that. If you think someone else is going to solve your problems for you, yeah. uh, then yeah. I, whenever someone comes to me and says, Dr. Ming, you know, what are we going to do about X? I immediately think, well, apparently nothing. Uh, because you think someone like me is going to walk along <laughs> and magically solve that problem for everyone else. Right. We make progress when we all push towards something that's going to change the world in a positive way. Yeah. Uh, this is not a, it's not a world of superheroes. Um, it's a world where we make effortful, incremental progress. Uh, and that makes the world better. Yeah. Well said. Thank you so, so much for your time and sharing your thoughts and wisdom and knowledge with us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a blast. It was. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.